Okay, so I guess we'll get started. Uh, good morning and happy Valentine's Day. Um, today we're going to do a quick review of some of the stuff that we did last time, and then I think what you're all probably waiting for is some midterm review. So I'm going to give you a list of topics that you should really focus on for the midterm and also give you just some, some hints and sort of some helpful ways to, that will hopefully help you to study. Because everybody studies differently and what works for you may not work for another person. So feel free to take the advice with a grain of, of salt. Um, just to remind you, the midterm is after we come back from reading week, which starts I think on Saturday or something like that. So it's reading week next week, no classes. And when we come back on Wednesday, February 28th, here in this classroom, we have the midterm at 8.30 to 10.30 a.m. So it's going to be uh, two hours long, and it will be approximately 70 multiple choice questions. So you'll have the full two hours to take your time and uh, look through those questions. Um, definitely go over all of your notes. All of the information that I ask you in the midterm will be from your notes. So as you know, we don't have a textbook, so there's no extra sort of readings to take a look at. But if you know the notes and if you sort of understand what I'm about to show you in the midterm review, you should be in a very good position to do well on the midterm. Uh, in terms of material, it covers from lecture one to lecture 10. Um, so lecture one, including all the material up to lecture 10, which takes us just to the very start of dyes. And we're talking about a little bit about dyes. So we're going to see that today. So today we have a, a rather short, it's a short holiday agenda. So we're going to do a quick review of pH acids and bases um, and indicators. We'll do our midterm review and then also I assigned last week assignment two, which is an essay on a dye of your choice. In that essay you'll have to write about the chemistry of the dye and the historical context of the dye, how it was discovered, how it's used. Uh, and hopefully some things that will be, you know, of special interest to you, including potential spin-off science that resulted due to the discovery of this dye and the usage of this dye. So I will put up assignment two again. I posted, I think on the weekend, on Sunday night, I posted the written instructions for assignment two. So if you have any questions about assignment two, you'll have an opportunity to ask me. And as always, if you have a question about something, if something is unclear, please feel free to you know, put up your hand, sort of jump in, and ask your question. Uh, in terms of the new material today, there's not going to be a ton of new material, because we'll really be focused on the midterm review. But this little bit of material that we do do is going to be now on paints. So we're still in the chemistry part of the course. And we're moving beyond dyes now to paints, which also have a lot of interesting, uh, well, interesting stories about them, interesting science about them. And we'll see some of that today with an introduction to paints. And we'll also talk a little bit about alchemy, which um, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But um, the idea of alchemy and early alchemist works really ended up being sort of the proto 
uh, the pro progenitor of modern chemistry and, and a lot of sciences. So we'll talk about this a little bit in relation to paint and in relation to color. And then we're going to watch, it's about 12 minutes, it's a, s a segment of a documentary that is about the uh, terracotta warriors, the terracotta army in China. And some of the things that are being discovered continuously, even now, about this incredible um, army, basically, it's a necropolis of statues that was put to be with the emperor in his tomb. And we're still discovering a lot about it. And one of the things we're discovering quite a lot about is the colors and the pigments that they used to actually paint the terracotta warriors. We now have an idea of what they would have looked like. And there is a really surprising characteristic in one of those paints, which kind of has blown everyone away. And you'll see what that is later on. And the pigment that we're talking about here, it's called Chinese purple or Han purple. So we'll talk about Han purple soon. Okay, so let's quickly uh, start with iClicker, um, just to refresh your memory from last session. We talked about acids, bases, indicators, and we gave a few basic characteristics of how you may be able to tell if something is acidic or something is basic. So if you remember, white or it really looks more yellow grape juice is something acidic than or as red grape juice. So do you think it's more acidic than red grape juice, less acidic, or equally acidic as red grape juice? I'm not actually drinking red grape juice. This is one of those colored water things, which probably is actually a pH indicator. But uh, we'll see. Um, okay. So I'll give it a couple more seconds. Okay, I'm shutting this down now. And the answer for this one is the white or the yellow grape juice is less acidic. Always remember that red tends to give you a more acidic color. Blue tends to correspond to a more alkaline or basic color. So when you see something particularly red in nature, it's usually a sign of acidity. To just review pHs and the pH scale, pH stands for potential hydrogen. And we're talking about sort of what happens to a solution as it becomes <coughs> ionic, as it becomes more or less charged. So potential hydrogen, you think of that as sort of a positive. But the pH scale typically goes from 0, which means very, very acidic at 0, to 14, which is extremely alkaline or basic. There is a segment of the scale you can have super acids that go down to about minus five. But in most of our daily life, thank goodness, we don't encounter a lot of super acids in sort of modern day-to-day -day interactions. So this zero to 14 scale is more than adequate enough for us. 
to remind you, at the neutral level of the pH scale is 7, that's water. And below 7, we have everything is very acidic, and above 7, we have things that are very, very basic. And that's basically it. But when we're talking about pH, what we're talking is ab about is a measure of the ability of the molecules in whatever solution we're talking about, be it, you know, water or some sort of solvent, to either accept, that means a base, become more base-like, or donate protons. Previously, when we talked about chemical interactions, we talked a lot about electrons. We talked about how electrons bond either covalently or ionically. In the terms of pH, we're talking about a positive charge. We're talking about a proton accepting or giving away a proton. And it's actually easy to remember that with the P and pH. So P is proton. It's because I did the question. So the next question is an indicator, something, to show how acidic or basic a solution is. So an indicator explodes to show how acidic or basic a solution is, changes color, changes consistency, changes state, or turns red. I think everybody is pretty much in. So for this one, an indicator, as its name would imply, basically changes color to show, oh, I have to stop, to show how acidic or basic a solution is. We had a video last time where we showed different types of indicators. The common one you would have used probably in a high school lab would be the litmus paper red and blue litmus paper. That's a good indicator, but the paper itself doesn't tell you how acidic or how basic a solution is, doesn't give you a number. So for that, we use other types of indicators, and we use a universal indicator, uh, basically that changes sort of a spectrum of rainbow colors for each of the different pH levels. And then there are also other indicators like phenolphthalein, um, that is magenta, that turns increasingly magenta as something gets incre increasingly basic. So I just gave you basically this review of indicators, but recall that the indicator itself is a dye. It's a weak dye that has weak acids that basically turn one color if their acidic properties are revealed and also form a different color in a conjugated sort of base form. So the color changes, of course, as this proton is either accepted or donated. 
and losing or gaining the proton changes the structure of the molecule and that uh, basically affects the pH of the solution. It also, when you pH change, you have a perceivable change in color. If you recall a video last time we had with uh, dyeing, with dyeing with natural dyes, um, the uh, young lady in the video said always, you know, you can be very careful with when you're dyeing what you wash out the remainders of the dye with, because that can obviously change the color if there's a reaction with the pH level. So that at sends me to my next couple of questions. But before we get directly to that one, uh, re recalling dyes for a moment, as chemical compounds, generally all dyes are inherently what? And we're talking about dyes here, not pigments. So are they all inherently stable, unstable, radioactive, synthetic, or organic? And remember when you're doing the multiple choice questions, I do try, when writing the multiple choice questions, I try to make them as clear as possible. I am not trying to trick you or mislead you, but sometimes something may be in my head and, and doesn't come out as clearly as it is meant to. So when you're reading your multiple choice questions, always remember that you want to select the best possible answer. There may be others that are sort of slightly true, but you want the best and the most relevant to what we've been talking about in the course. So for this, let me just stop this now, the answer is unstable. So dyes are inherently unstable, and I see some of you said synthetic, which actually makes some sense, because we talked about different dyes and what kinds of dyes we use today in society, and they tend to be the synthetic inorganic ones, because those are the easiest to mass produce. Um, but in this question, again, this is an example of best wording, Dyes are inherently, as chemical compounds, they're inherently unstable, and that is what gives the dye its color-giving property. Something that is unstable when it reacts with the fabric or whatever material it's dyeing has a reaction, and we'll see this later with redox reactions, which are something called reduction and oxidation reactions, where as soon as the dye molecules as soon as the dye permeates the fabric or the material, the, a reaction occurs, a lot of sophisticated reaction occurs to make the, day, the dye stabilize. And that's why we say a dye takes to a material, because what's happening is chemically, the dye is switching from being unstable to being stable, it's locked, and the color is permanently infused into that surface.
So that is a very important part about dyes, that dyes are inherently unstable, because it's why we can dye with them basically at all. And this is the question I was getting at earlier. So after dyeing, it is important to rinse the material in a pH something soap. In a pH positive soap, a pH negative soap, a pH neutral soap, or a pH tested soap. So recall with pH, we're talking about protons, the transfer of protons. looks like most of us have answered and the answer is indeed pH neutral soap as we said before pH changing pH changes color if you want to get the dye color that you originally hoped for you don't want the pH of the soap changing that color so unless you're really going for some sort of specific effect with a pH color change here, you always want to have a, a pH neutral soap or something that you're rinsing off that excess dye with. And then this is one of the last questions here. And I think we had this question last time, but it, it was one of them that was rather unclear. So I thought, I believe we had it last time. If we didn't, uh, apologies, I'm putting it up. Um, again, because it's kind of an interesting one, but in A or an something, the more blah bonds there are, the more red the leaf appears. So is it in an anthocyanin, the more double bonds there are, the more red? In an anthocyanin, the more single bonds? Chromophore, triple bonds? Carotenoid, single bonds? or carotenoid double bond. So if you get this question on the test, and let's say you just have no idea, you forget this part, what you want to remember is, I'm talking about something that is talking about being more red. Now granted, you may not be able to remember very readily what anthocyanins are or what carotenoids are, but sound out the name, and carotenoid sounds like carrots, carotene, beta-carotene is what we talked about, that's orange. So just think about the colors, what color transformation am I talking about? Does it make sense for something to be red to red, or does it make sense for it to be orange to red? Because if you recall, anthocyanins were red. So I'm going to stop. And for this answer, what I was looking for is E. So in a 
carotenoid, which was that orange substance, the more double bonds there are, like beta-carotene, the more double bonds in an orange, originally carotenoid, the more red the substance turns. So although anthocyanins, that makes sense, the anthocyanins are red to begin with, so I'm really not talking about a change in that case. And if you go look back at that slide with beta-carotene, it was showing you sort of the single and double bond alternating structure that formed the chromophore or color-giving part of the molecule. So, of course, I'm not going to ask you to draw or identify what is what in chemical diagrams. Um, I will not ask you, is this particular atom singly, doubly, or conjugated bonded to this? Um, but in what you're studying to understand uh, remember, because we're trying to understand color here, the, the key is not to be a chemistry course, but the important thing to concentrate on is the chromophore in all of these compounds that we're talking about. So in beta-carotene, it's this sort of long tail of single and double bonds. In dyes, we talked about benzene with a ring of hydrogens, basically, and hydrocarbons. So in, and in photo, uh, for photosynthesis with chlorophyll, we talked about one compound sort of stabilizing the center of that ring. So these are just the overview things that you want to keep in mind when studying. Okay, so let's, let's get to talking about studying. This is going to be a multiple choice exam, which some of you may be happy about and some of you maybe not so happy about. Um, there, there's, you know, pros and cons of each. But with a multiple choice exam, if somebody gives you typically a study guide or narrows it down with certain topics, that's good. That, that should help you to some degree. So when I go through this study guide and talk about different ways that you can prepare yourself, if you can do all of these things, you should feel confident and feel good about answering the multiple choice question. There are tips on preparing for a multiple choice exam. This is a professor uh, who has written this article and also says how great his multiple choice tests are. But uh, it's a very, very good article actually because it will give you certain strategies to look through and certain patterns that you may be able to recognize. So please take a look at that. So then, as we've said, it's all multiple choice questions. It'll be about 70, maybe 65, maybe 70, maybe 75. You will have two hours to complete the whole thing. And it's worth 18% of your total grade. So it's not a, a huge amount. Re bear in mind that your assignments are 42%, all three of them. So they're 14% each. So don't worry if you're feeling you're, you, you sort of flubbed the midterm, you have a chance to still catch up. Uh, as I said before, lecture material that is on the midterm is lectures 1 through 10, including lecture 10, inclusive. And I'm going to give you right now a list of some topics, uh, but the best way, and this may not be true for everyone, but what I would suggest is if you learn well by sort of writing things down or synthesizing the information yourself, is that you go through the notes, take my initial guide of the broad topics, go through the notes, 
and make a more detailed guide for yourself. <clears throat> and as you're sort of allotting amount of time to go through each thing, you know, check it off, literally, just check it off and you can be confident that you've prepared as much as you can for that. So when you're generating this list, I'd say just look at the slide titles and if you're at a loss for anything else, you can just write these down and that forms the basis of the beginning of your detailed study notes. And we know that one of the earliest slides I put up was saying how this course is going to be, it's a combination of a couple things, physics, physiology, chemistry. We're coming now a little bit more to the art part and the history part. Uh, so that's not in your midterm, but just group things. Always see the sort of broad structure of things. When you're going to study, you, if you know one area for you is more challenging than another one, then do that one first, I would suggest. Okay, so here are the core topics. Do not, um, there are a lot. <laughs> but we'll go through this. So it's, it's not, uh, hopefully it's, it's legible from the back. We've done a lot so far. Um, it is a double speed course, so the pace is quite a bit faster than the other course. Uh, but the main things are, you know, light and color. We started with, we started with our definition of color. We talked about light, we talked about photons, and then we talked about additive and subtractive color mixing. And then when we, after we talked about this and the color wheel and color combinations, we went on to the eye and the brain and how humans perceive color. So you want to review the structure of the eye, which was, were the mechanics, the optics for capturing the light, and then the brain. And I think probably, because it is rather a confusing thing, is the opponent process. So I think probably uh, a lot of you will want to review the opponent process, which is how our brain interprets the colors um, pretty well. And we can do some of that if there is sort of a, a desire to do so. Uh, later on, the chemistry part of it was more just definitions, properties of pigments, properties of dyes. So all of this electronic vibrational rotational energy levels in molecules, uh, types of molecular structures, etc. So you can go through this list uh, at your uh, sort of in your own time. But what I would suggest when going through this list is, and this is the part where I say, if you can do all of this, you'll be very well prepared to answer multiple choice questions. So when synthesizing your notes, break it down into little chunks. I would say do definitions and test yourself with sort of explanation questions descriptions of how actual diagrams work. See if you can provide some examples that were given in the slides, because those were pretty specific. And also sketches and diagrams, especially in assignment one, we had all of the spectral reflectance curve sketches. Obviously, it's a multiple choice test, so you will not be sketching. But you may be asked to answer something about a spectral re reflectance curve or identify a color, let's say, from a spectral reflectance curve. 
so again, and I know this, this may be, you know, really elementary to you as well, but um, people have been asking sort of how I would recommend studying, and I know it is quite of a, a big chunk of material. So hopefully this may be a little bit helpful to break things down. Just make sure you get your definitions straight. So there's a couple key terms that we've talked about. We talked about light, color, electromagnetic radiation, EM waves, e the EM spectrum, electromagnetic that is, and photons. Q value saturation for how we describe a color. Tint tone shade, again about aspects of different colors. Uh, color appearance, light fastness, transparency, specific gravity, tint strength, particle size. Does anybody remember what that is? Exactly, yeah. So characteristics of a pigment. And then later on we got into sort of molecular structure with chemistry, so atom, electron, proton, neutron, all of this stuff, molecules. And then to uh, see if you actually understand all of this, ask yourself what's the difference between such and such. It actually crystallized it in your head, even if you think you know it. When you put yourself on the spot to answer that question, it may not seem as, as simple as it first appears. These three in the middle, um, as you've said correctly, these are all properties. So another thing you can do is any kind of major definition we've talked about, synthesize a list for yourself of all the properties of those things. How do we talk about them? So for the first two, it's how we talk about color. And for the second one, it's how we talk about pigments. Okay, so those are the properties. Uh, also, I've sort of interjected, uh, there are a number of, of really key personalities that have further, uh, have basically furthered our knowledge and understanding of color. So I have put a lot of them in the notes. I did give you some information. Some of it was a little more like uh, colorful, personal. I'm not going to test you on their personal lives or anything like that. So don't worry about where they were born, etc., etc., etc. Exactly when they lived from, to, from. So dates like that I will not test you on. As long as you have an understanding of the basic contribution they made to color science and whereabouts that contribution fit in the timeline of events coming to our modern knowledge of color today. So examples of some people that you should you should know, certainly at least be familiar with and be able to think of maybe one thing that they have contributed are all of these guys. Okay. So some of them you'll notice, so Newton, Eaton, von Goethe, or Goethe, those three basically, we had experimentum crucis with Newton, Eaton was the color wheel, and Goethe also did his research on the color wheel and added magenta to the color wheel. So these people were really about describing color. Max Planck, Young, Helmholtz, and Clark Maxwell, those were the physicists who came in to really decode color and light, and how also the eye functioned as a receptor or as a sort of as a camera, basically, to get light. And all of these people contributed to tricolor theory, which were 
understanding, which was understanding that basically we have rods and cones. The cones are color receptors, C in three colors, red, green, and blue. So that's the tricolor. And as human beings, this is how we perceive and detect light. Going beyond that, Herring discovered or proposed, and it was later sort of verified, the opponent process, which went beyond just how the receptors function, beyond how the cones function, and talked about how the brain takes that signal and compares it to four different colors. So that's the tetrachromatic um, perception of things, yellow, green, red, and blue. And then another example there, Perkin. Perkin is one of our recent additions. He was the discoverer of movine and sort of the kickstarter of the chemical and industrial dyeing industry. Okay, so questions. Here are a couple of questions that I might ask myself uh, for explanation example questions to test my understanding of the concept. So the first one would be, how does a green dye molecule selectively absorb light and what wavelength would it, or wavelengths, would it absorb? Does anybody want to venture a, a guess? Okay. So we, we talked about, <coughs> sorry, about with molecules that what's happening is light is, is basically projected onto the surface and some of the wavelengths are absorbed and some of them are reflected to our eye. And that's what we see. So in terms of a green dye molecule, it will selectively absorb all the light. Oh, sorry about that. That's, that's a new one. My phone ringing. Okay. So um, basically what's happening is the green dye will absorb all the light other than green. Okay. So the wavelengths that it absorbs is the blue wavelengths and the red wavelengths. Everything other than green, it reflects the green, therefore we see the green. Three different uh, differences between rods and cones. That is directly from one of your slides. Just think about how, for that one, how do rods and cones send the signals to the brain? How are they wired up? We talked a lot about connections and about imagining these things like electrical circuits. Does it, do rods and cones each have basically one wire directly to the brain for one connection? Does anybody remember if rods are like that? Four different, yeah. They have, so, so those, sorry, the rods can be assigned in groups. A group of rods, all the signals together are collected in parallel, basically, and then transmitted to the brain. So several photons are detected by rods. The signals from several rods are summed up and sent in one message to the brain, whereas in cones, for each red, green, and blue cone, each one has a direct channel, essentially. Why does having three types of cones allow us 
to see in color. Right. So remember we're talking in this one, you could think that it's maybe a lot harder, a lot more complex to answer it. But that is essentially the idea. Without going into the fact that, okay, we have the eye, the eye is the receptor. It looks at the photons, it gets those signals. The confusion, I think, comes in when you start thinking about how does that work with the opponent process? At what point does the opponent process take over? For this question, the three types of cones is exactly that. It's tricolor theory. It's thinking about three color cones. It's a system of primaries. That idea, the core idea of a system of primaries is really important. In the course, it's been a running thread throughout. We started in the first lecture by filling in that color wheel. And in the color wheel, we had uh, basically the painter's primaries. So primaries, just by convention, we tend to use red, green, and blue. But a set of primaries could be any three colors that when you mix them together, you're capable of getting the full array of spectral colors, of rainbow colors. So you could start with different primaries. Instead of red, green, and blue, you could start with red, yellow and blue, which it did. Okay, so the more, some more questions. Subtractive and additive mixing process. We talked about these a lot, and we also showed some graphs and how things combined based on the curves. So when thinking, obviously, as the name implies about additive mixtures, what you're doing is you have spectral reflectance curves of two colors. You are adding those together and so that the sum is essentially the sum tracing out the overall shape of those two spectral curves added together. When you have subtractive mixing, you're taking away the color. So again, it is those pieces of the color that don't line up, they form a deficit you're taking pieces away. So it's the equivalent of subtracting two graphs, one from the other. And remember, for this kind of, of mixing, additive gives you white. All colors mixed together to give you white. And subtractive gives you black. That's the absence of color. So we, we could go further into detail with this. But I'm going to leave you to sort of look at that on your own and just remember, think of as well, there was one specific image which I had shown in slides, and it was a combination of three colors. It was the three primaries, and it was kind of like a, this Venn diagram or something like that, showing you all the three primaries and where they all mixed for additive mixture was white. You can do the same thing with subtractive mixtures, but remember your color base in terms of printing and often, um, well, often printing was CMYK. We, we called this RGB. We had red, say red, green, blue. That's additive. And then the subtractive 
Instead of red, green, blue, we had their opposites or their complements, which were uh, CMY, cyan, magenta, yellow. And then for good measure, because black is not really a color, it's the absence of all light, we add black. So K, K for black, because it gets confusing with two Bs for blue. And that is the color system that you, a lot of the time you'll see, you know, if, you're, if you um, sort of do image editing or you, you'll often see the convert RGB to CMYK, that this is all that it's doing. It's taking something that was an additive mixture and trying to recombine it and get the same kind of colors as a subtractive mixture. Okay. Uh, sorry. Mm. So this one was straightforward. We watched the Newton video. We had a little worksheet which basically um, set all of this out, just, to f just so you could tell somebody in, two, in a minute, so what did Newton do? Well, this is basically what he did. Um, he sent light through an aperture or a hole. It split up or dispersed into the colors of the rainbow. He then put another prism in front of some of those colors and found that the colors didn't split any further. They stayed the same color that they had been originally which meant something important. And this is the key takeaway here. The color wasn't changed, so the conclusion that he had was that color itself is a fundamental property of light. It does not break down any further. And this, you know, to us that may seem sensible or not like a big revelation, but at the time it was really not understood that color was a fundamental property of light. They thought maybe prisms actually gave the coloration. So this ca caused a shift in basic thinking about physics and allowed us to move on and have a much better understanding of color after that. Okay, sketching. Sketch the spectral reflectance curves for these colors. Now remember on our assignment one, we had that last slider, which showed you brightness. Uh, and that was kind of, that got a little bit confusing. So when you're thinking of sketching curves, just assume that we're talking about like a normal, we're not in a middle gray or anything, we're just, we're just gonna make the curves go down to the bottom, essentially black. So if you're sketching something, you know that Pale, unless the adjective tells you pale, as in maybe grayish, pale green. So pale green would, again, okay, if we have our intensity here, and we have our colors, so we have um, blue, green, red from 400 nanometers to 700. Okay, we're talking about green. So where would we expect the peak to be in nanometers, roughly? What would you expect the peak to be? Assignment one, memories coming back, yes. Yeah, like, uh, so green, usually like a standard green is about 550. So it's 550. Okay, so let's just talk about a standard green. Let's say it was really, really green, really pure green. 
you get something that kind of looks like a peak in the green. But we're talking about a pale, <coughs> excuse me, a pale green. Now remember in our intensity that black is at the bottom. So the way you draw something that's completely black, it would just be a line across this. And the way you draw something that's completely white, I, uh, also at the 100% intensity would just be a line like this. So let's say you have this pale green, it's really, it's close to white, it's like 75% white. A pale green then would be something that goes at the 75% mark, and basically instead of connecting down here, starts here, does the peak, and comes back down to the 75. So that would be your pale green. So you can try those other ones. Um, middle gray, that's pretty simple, right? That would be 50% gray. Would it have a curve? Or would it be a line? Line. Okay, yeah, it would be a line. Okay. All right. Um, this one, I just wanted to touch really briefly. So I've, I've said sketch the reflectance curves for yellow and red. Now we're talking about a subtractively mixed color in this case. So if we had curves for yellow and red, first we have to think about what yellow is. And yellow is typically the combination of red and green, right? So our yellow is going to be somewhere around here. So what you'd have is a spectrum that's kind of biased toward this end of it. So what happens when you, let's say the yellow peak was, let's say it was like this. Let's say they both had really distinct peaks in the yellow and really distinct peaks in the red. If you're going to subtract these graphs from each other, basically you're going to flip them. So if your yellow, you know, is red and green, and then you're subtracting red, what do you have left? Green. So that's what you would get for this color. Okay. This looks quite complicated, but it actually is sort of um, a neater version a rehash of something that we did cover in lecture. Uh, my slides didn't look like this because they were stepwise sort of animations. But first thing, you open a textbook, you see a diagram like this and panic. It's a good idea. Ask yourself, first of all, look at the diagram and what do you think it's trying to explain? What's the concept behind this diagram? What is it illustrating? So we know we've got some, some reflectance curves here. We've got white light going in, we've got red, green, and blue going in. We've got something happening here and two wavelengths coming out. Do you remember what, think of stage lights. Uh, anybody remember what that was called? If you put, let's say, if you have a stage light and you have a gel, 
and you put the gel in front of the light. So that's the filtering process. So basically these are the filters. So this diagram is illustrating filtering of light and what happens when you put light through specifically different colored filters and what curve you get as a result of that. And when you take a look at this, this makes a lot of sense. So the first ones, this is CMY, sorry, or MYC in this case. And you're basically putting things in through a magenta filter. Magenta is red and blue. So the red and blue wavelengths come out and this is what you see. These are combining the filters to different points. You can trace through in this diagram and just explain to yourself and make sure you sort of understand what's going on there. One site I want to point out is this site. Here, this link at the bottom, it's called Hyperphysics. Uh, a lot of it is more advanced, certainly physics-based, and so a lot more advanced in some cases than what we're going to be doing in this course. But it's a beautiful site, and they have a section on vision, on color, little kind of card-sized tidbits of information, which is a really valuable tool to look through, and I think it would help you with studying if you check out the hyperphysics site. And it's all linked together, this is linked graphically as well, so you can just click through if something uh, piques your interest. And this is an example, this is again from the hyperphysics site. This is the author's take on vision. And this is kind of a map, I mean this is a really well done map, must have taken a long time to do, but when you're studying, remember to map together the related concepts. I know some people like to do mind maps or flow charts. You may not twig to that. That's perfectly fine. It's totally individual. But see the bigger picture and always group things into units so that studying is easier. And you'll actually see we have covered. So vision, he's going to the physical part, defects here, and then color vision and uh, rods and cones here. Okay. So we did do some questions to consider uh, already, but with some of that dense, very broad topic list, there's a couple more um, units sort of that I'd like to just show you a couple sample questions for. So some things you should understand and again, you can look at this and sort of digest it at your own speed later on. But what is a color system? How did these color systems come about historically? And what are they based on? I mean, we know that color systems and color wheels and these things are human inventions. What is the physical basis of the color wheel? Or at least the logical basis of it? And you should be able to find all of that in your notes. Basically. Now getting into the chemistry of color questions. Uh, very simple sort of definition questions. What are chemical bonds? Why do molecules bond? Go back to your definitions. Get a definition of covalent and ionic bonds. Get a definition of conjugated bonds. Uh, what are the different types of bonds? And what are their properties? What's actually happening in them? And more importantly than just doing an organic chemistry course, how does this bonding structure affect color? How does it affect 
what we see. And this, is, this should be all throughout your notes. Uh, just a historical sort of note, how did the industrial chemistry industry take off? And what are some sort of spin-off science from that? Okay, chemistry questions. We talked a lot about molecules. And one of the really important things were these ideas of energy states of molecules. The molecules have three types of energy states. And you can affect them differently by putting different amounts of energy into the system. So you have the electronic, vibrational, and rotational energy states. Electronic is the exchange of electrons. That takes the most energy to change. Vibrational, which is kind of the springiness between the atoms, takes the second, most the second most energy to change, so middle energy. And then the rotational, which is the molecules, essentially the atoms of the molecules rotating around this common axis, takes the least amount of energy to change. And you may remember this by thinking of a common household device, which are microwaves. They change the rotational energy of the molecules and they heat up the food because it's mainly water and the water molecules are rotating. Okay. Um, bond structures, exa again examples, you have porphyrins, you have um, conjugated bonds, ionic bonds, covalent bonds, all in the notes here. Name some specific examples. Well, two we talked about which we did a question on today, beta carotene, and then chlorophyll, which gives green to plants. Getting on to pigments then, what are pigments? What are their six basic properties? Remember that we had light and color. Those had three each. Pigments have six. And how did these properties affect how the color is in the pigments? And how do these pigments actually differ from dies. Okay, so let's do a question. That was basically, I hope it was a little bit helpful. That's just uh, what you should be starting on with your midterm studying. So these two characteristics, when we're talking about pigments and dyes, can tell us the difference between pigments and dyes. Is it latency and transparency, viscosity and affinity, solubility and viscosity, affinity and solubility, or light fastness and alkalinity? Okay, so we're thinking about pigments, we're thinking about dyes. We think about the pigments, just remember the pictures of pigments that I showed. They're like particulate powdery substances. Dyes are usually, they have some sort of viscosity to them, right? Um, so there's a difference between what happens with the particles and how they are suspended in the dye. That may help. Okay. All right. Let me stop this. So that is a good guess for C. 
but actually the answer is uh, D, affinity and solubility. We talked about this a little bit last time, but let's just, let's just review that. So it is true that you think of a dye, you think of it being sort of a fluid substance. It has some sort of viscosity or thickness or consistency. That is as a result, though, of other properties. And the two properties that that comes a result, as a result of, are affinity and solubility. And let's see how that works. So with dyes and pigments, there's really the two distinctions, and those are the solubility and the affinity. You can think of solubility as solubility is, okay, so solubility is somehow something dissolves in a solvent, whereas affinity is how well it sticks to the fibers. So pigments, these fine particulate matter, they are not soluble. If you recall early on, one of the characteristics of pigments was particle size, and also another one called specific gravity. So you have particles of a certain size for each pigment, and it's better for all of them to be a uniform size, but it tends to be that they're distributed over a range of sizes, which can have a number of effects on the color, like splotchiness and, and things not taking properly. The specific gravity is the measure of if the pigment sinks or floats or is suspended in the water. So the difference with the pigments is they don't dissolve in something like water. Dyes do. They're soluble. You can put them into things and they dissolve. The pigments particles are actually much smaller than the water molecules and so there's no interaction there. Affinity is how the substance forms bonds with the chemical fibers. And it's, that, that's like, you know, it's sticking power, essentially. Pigments don't have affinity to the surface. They essentially stay, stay on top of the surface. And we'll see this later today when we talk a bit about paints. Uh, the paints stay at the top of a canvas. Dyes permeate the whole material and bond on a molecular level with the fabric. So they stick faster. This was just uh, a recap again of dye structures. We talked about benzene. It's a ring, basically a ring of carbon ring with hydrogens around it. And what happens in a dye is these ring-like structures are there, but they're the hydrogens on the outside are replaced with different kinds of groups. So groups like these. The R in this just means some sort of a compound, some sort of an organic compound. The R isn't actually, it's just a symbol for organic compound. So it's the carbon atoms, these guys, the double bonded ones in the molecule that constitute the chromophore or the color giving part of this molecule. Types of dyes, we had a number of different types. As you can imagine, we talked about fibers and things binding. Well, there's some dyes that bind directly and stick to the fibers better, and there's some that require extra steps. 
Um, and one of these extra step type dyes is called a mordant, which changes the chemical composition, changes the acidity or the, the uh, alkalinity of the dye and makes it stick better or changes it slightly. So one thing we wanted to keep reminding ourselves of is since dyes are unstable, what happens when the dye fixes, what it takes, it becomes stable. So typically these groups form ionic bonds, which if you remember, we had ionic bonds are electron taken or given, not shared. So these typically form ionic bonds with the surfaces that they color. These do not ionize, they get dissolved in the material like food dyes. You may remember this from last time. So a lake. A lake is what? Is a lake a pigment that started off as a dye but is changed by adding a mordant? A pigment that's titrated and subsequently heated under high pressure? A solvent used with a binder or a natural organic dye. Okay. So, stop this. And that's absolutely correct. It is something, a lake, we talk about lake pigments, it's something that started off as a dye but is changed by adding a mordant. And to review that, I'll bring back this particular slide. So the lake pigments, they started as a dye. Remember we talked about azo dyes, which is a unique group of dyes. They come from organic compounds. And a fixing agent, or something to make things stick better, or a mordant, of basically metallic salt. We said in ancient times they used calcium uh, chalk or bones. Now we use metallic salts. So metallic salt has been added to change the dye so that things stick better. Um, what's happening is the color agent is precipitated out of the solution. It's basically filtered out of the solution. And these pigments are unstable when typically exposed to light. So their light fastness or that property of pigment is very, very low. They fade easily. Oh. Um, for the reason that they're called unstable, they're often called fugitive. Um, let's do this one and then we'll take a break. But with respect to the midterm, uh, in terms of the course material thus far, what would you say the, the best, sort of, the most applicable answer for you is in this here? So do you feel, um, you know, obviously you're going to need to study the material, but do you feel comfortable with the content in general? Um, would you like a review on opponent processing? 
or a review on chemistry of color and dyeing, or a review on light, photons, and physics of color, or actually a review of a topic that I didn't mention. What would be most helpful to you? Okay, so this will inform what I do uh, next lecture. So if everybody's pretty good, um, then we'll just carry on into Pate's next lecture. Okay, it looks like everybody's pretty good. That's nice. I'm glad. I want you to do well. I do not, uh, uh, you know, I, I do want you to do well. So that's good. Okay, great. So we'll stop that. And the dye essay, we can talk about that when we come back from the break. So what I will do is stop the recording now. It's 9.40, so how about we come back for 10 o'clock. And um, I'll start off where we left off. We left off with the assignment, but this is a sort of a summary of your assignment. More detailed um, instructions are on Moodle. But if anybody would like to ask any questions about the assignment, I'm sort of opening up the floor. Okay, is it pretty clear? So it's going to be four or five pages, and the real core of this essay is, you know, there'll, there'll be a lot of interesting things that you can talk about, but what your TAs will be looking for in the marking is really the how it's made kind of thing. What, what is the chemical story behind this dye? What produces it? Why did people even look for that? And what does it do, and how does it bind? with whatever fabric you're using it on. I'll show you some diagrams a little later today where you may get some idea onto, uh, as to the kind of things you want to talk about. So I guess I'll just I'll sort of move on. You're welcome to email me with questions as well about the assignment. Any last sort of going once, going twice, last question about assignment two, anyone? Um, well, at least two, I mean, like at least, I would say probably um, four or five would be a good number of references to have. You definitely want at least two. I mean, at least two is the bare minimum. Okay. Moving on to sort of finish our bit of dyes here, just a little bit more on the different types of dyes, because I glossed over that. I didn't exactly go into detail as to what those are. But there are a number of different types of dyes. Direct dyes is one of them. That's the most the easiest to use, where you have essentially the 
dye molecules bonding directly with the fabric, sticking well, high affinity, and basically this is a direct dye. You also have a dispersed dye where the colorant is basically not soluble in water, but it suspends. If you think about things like soap, you see those soapy films in water. The, the colorant is suspended in the water, but still distributed throughout of it. It can partially directly attach to some of the fabric in these cases. And it's good for dyeing. Think about polyesters. They're kind of, polyesters are like synthetic sort of silks and slippery and stuff. You can think of a film, but it's better for, dispersed dyes are better for dyeing things like polyester and synthetic materials. Uh, fiber reactive dyes, as the name suggests, they basically react chemically and they form, instead of most of the dyes we talked about were forming either an ionic bond or dissolving in the substance, fiber reactive dyes react very specially to the fiber that you're mixing them with and form covalent bonds, so sharing electron bonds and they make this permanent bond through a complex series of chemical reactions. And then there are these really interesting ones, which you may want to consider for writing your essay on. These are called vat dyes. And if you know what a vat is, it's kind of like a big barrel or a big drum. And vat dyes, one of the really common vat dyes is indigo, which was produced from, again, from antiquity, but indigo dyers, especially in India, use these vat dyes. And you'll see these gigantic vats of indigo solution dug deep into the ground. And the reason they're actually dug into the ground is because of what happens with the chemical reaction of the dye. It's something called a redox reaction. And when you get oxygen, sort of basically it's, it's how after the dye substance is immersed in the dye and you expose it to the air or to the oxygen, the oxygen causes a chemical reaction that makes the dye fix or become permanent. So basically until they get the color of indigo or the shade of indigo that they want, they want no oxygen to contaminate the dye, so the dye vats are dug deep into the ground to have the minimum sort of oxygen contamination. We'll see an example of this. Redox reactions are the thing that drive this. This stands for, the redox stands for reduction and oxidization. This is a whole other chemistry topic, which sort of the scope of this is a little bit beyond the course and you don't have to worry about balancing redox reactions. But what is important to take away is that a redox reaction talks about, again, an exchange of electrons one compound or one molecule gains the electrons, which is, um, actually, which is actually reduction, and one gives up electrons, which is oxidization. If that doesn't make sense to you, think about what electrons are. Remember we talked about electronegativity, and we said electrons have negative charges. So when you gain an electron, you become more and more negative, that has sort of the reduction. This is why it's called reduction. You're gaining electrons. It's more negativity, so it's reduced. 
the oxidization gives away the electrons and is becoming more positive. So this is just losing and gaining of electrons. And if my explanation didn't quite make sense to you, there's a really easy mnemonic that you can use to remember which is which. And that mnemonic is uh, oil rig. So oxidization, O, I, L, it loses. So oil, oxidation, it loses. And rig, R, reduction, it gains. Electrons is what we're talking about. So without going into the, the rules for redox reaction, because you can go through the periodic table, you have a number of rules to follow and how you balance redox reactions. Let's just keep in mind that these redox reactions gain or lose an electron and things like oxidization when you have dyes exposed to air, exposed to sunlight, somehow changed in another way. You get these redox reactions and that changes the ultimate color you're left with. And here's an example. So I talked about a VAT dye of indigo and uh, it's not quite legible. Don't worry about the legibility because you will not be asked to reproduce this. But this is an example of the redox reaction that occurs in indigo dye. So on one side, you have basically a form of indigo, which is the blue form of indigo. On the other side, you have indigo with a leuco base. It's like a whiter, greener, yellowier form of indigo. And these two forms of indigo interact. One gets reduced, one is oxidized, and a color results from that. So what this is showing you here is this basically is one of these indigo dyes as, the, as you get successively dipping the dye more and getting more and more of that oxidization reduction reaction, the color changes. So going from very, very yellowy white to very blue. It comes from the indigofera plant and um, the leuco indigo, as we said, is the yellow one. The blue is the insoluble indigo or the indigo that's bonded. And this is what's happening with the exposure to oxygen. So as I've said, the vats are dug deep to avoid the oxygen contamination before the dye actually sets. And this is actually what it looks like. If you were to sort of imagine it on a molecular level, what you're seeing here is sort of the outer solution of the dye. The dye molecules are in this solution. You dip the fabric into the solution, which has a very clear uh, structure. The dye molecules come into, when, they're, when this is a vat dye, let's say, when the fabric is placed into the vat, the dye molecules infiltrate this fabric sample and become placed at various places in the structure of the fabric. Then basically what happens is when you lift it out and you have exposure to, to air, these molecules become more and more bound. They're less able to move. And when you finally lift it out completely, expose it to air and sunlight, the molecules set and they're fixed in place in the eye itself. And this is how this whole process works. 
This is a kind of interesting, it's not uh, married, it has some text, so I'll just show you, it's really interesting to see um, how this is done, the process is done. It's a very manual, work-intensive process. And a lot of this happens in India. So with any dye, usually you want your material to be wet. It distributes the particles more evenly. So that's uh, vat dyes, and you'll see if you look up online, uh, there, I mean, by no means is indigo the only vat dye that exists. There are a lot of them, and these processes for vat dyeing have been exist in existence for centuries and centuries. So there is a lot to write about on vat dyes. And that, for now, ends our dye section. Um, so we're going to talk about, we're just going to do a very quick intro to paints. But the body of the paint stuff will be coming on Friday, including some interesting applications of that. So what we want to think about with paint, what makes it different from a dye, which was actually one of the questions during the break, remember that the paint, I'm talking about affinity and solubility, paint is not, it is not, it does not dissolve, it floats, it stays on top of the surface. It doesn't have that molecular bonding at the very microscopic level to the fabric like dyes do. OK. 
Okay, we're going to talk about paint, but first I'm going to ask you a question, which I'm just curious what you think here. So what is uh, alchemy? It's kind of strange, right? We're doing a science course on understanding color, but we're going to talk about alchemy for a moment. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I think everybody pretty much weighed in. And uh, yes, uh, alchemy is indeed typically historically the quest to, to, to transmute transmutation of metals usually into gold and to find this sort of universal elixir, a universal solvent in which everything can be dissolved. Um, it's kind of, some of the answers are, are a little silly on there, but some of them are not so silly because initially there's so many aspects to a sort of an historical overview of alchemy. But for our purposes, why are we even talking about this? It seems kind of like magic or a fairy tale. Well, not really. It, was, it, it really was how chemistry essentially was founded. From um, Greco-Roman times, from the ancient Arab world, there were always alchemists, and they basically were the first chemists experimenting and understanding how matter worked by heating up matter, by sort of chemically combining it in different ways. And this article here, Alchemy, How a Tradition Scanning Millennia Became Modern Chemistry, is a really interesting article to take a look at. But we're just going to uh, sort of skim the surface and the definition of alchemy here. Actually, it's got interesting roots too, linguistically. It has some Arabic roots and it also has um, ancient Egyptian roots. Alchemy, chem, chemet is black, black land, black magic. It has a whole bunch of different kind of connotations. Um, but there is a list of famous alchemists you can find here. One of the first they call Hermes Transmigestus, which is, we think, a conflagration of an ancient Egyptian god Toth, the god of writing and science and, and magic with um, Hermes the Greek god, messenger, communication. So it's an interesting history. Take a look at that. One of the um, Arabic alchemists is credited as well because of his experiments. And he experimented basically with sulfur, with mercury, and with salt. Um, he's credited sort of as our sort of forefather of chemistry. Here are some of our alchemical signals, symbols. And how does this really, how does this react to paint? Well, we'll be talking about using different kinds of compounds and molecular substances and, and metals as well in paints. So basically, the perfect mixture, an alchemist's dream was getting, achieving this perfect mixture of these elements, 
which were sulfur, salt, and mercury. A perfect sort of balanced mixture of sulfur and mercury should give us this universal elixir. Well, we didn't get a universal elixir. What we did get were some really interesting paints. When you mix together these kinds of items, and you'll see that with the Chinese purple, the Han purple, which actually has some startling prior, um, sort of properties, which that it, it sort of radiates at radio wavelengths, and it also could give us insight into how semiconductors could be designed more efficiently. So this is really, it's strange, but this was something that was discovered, the Han purple, as a result of the Chinese early pursuit of alchemy. In terms of history and paintings in history, you probably recognize these paintings at the bottom. These are the famous Lascaux um, cave paintings in France, which are about 17, 18,000 years old, we think. Uh, unfortunately, they're closed to the public now because the contamination, um, the carbon was degrading too much. But they do have a replica, you can visit it. And there's a video you can take a look to see all of these beautiful pigments, these deep sort of red ochres and dark black carbon pigments that people at the time were using to paint their natural world. So a lot of, there's a lot of oxen, and these are huge. These are like 15, this particular animal, that's an oxen I think, is like, is, is really long. It's like 15 feet long, they're huge gigantic paintings. So with doing things like grinding up substances, grinding up rocks, minerals, insects, we have a number of pigments. But the alchemists sort of do, started to do something differently, which was the heating of matter and the combining of matter in different ways. And this gave us a number of different things, including this Han purple, and also Egyptian blue and Egyptian faience. You've probably seen uh, some really beautiful Egyptian faience. Faience, you think of as pottery with a sort of a glaze. But Egyptians got this beautiful sort of blue color. They combined uh, copper with sand at high temperatures and sort of ground it up. And this is what faience giving us this beautiful blue color is. And again, this was very much in the pursuit of understanding science and alchemy and how substances combined. So there are many different types of paint. Um, for those of you who are artists or even you know, hobbyists, you will have known you can, you can buy oil paints, you can buy acrylic paints. In the Renaissance and sort of medieval, they had tempera-based. You can still buy tempera-based paints, but tempera-based is egg tempera. So the egg yolk was used as a binding agent in the paints. For a lot of the beautiful Renaissance masterpieces, that is what you see as the binding agent for the pigment particles, these egg yolk paintings. Um, encaustic is a curious kind of paint that is a wax-based paint. You actually have to heat it up to apply it. Uh, and watercolors, of course, are just sort of essentially water-soluble dyes that um, if you've tried to paint with watercolors, I personally find it really, really hard. It doesn't give you the control that an oil gives. They run all over the place. And that, again, you can think of that as the way that it reacts 
the pigments do not like reacting with water and don't react with water very well. So we'll talk about all of these next time and we'll give some examples and go into looking at some pieces of art that were done using each of these different paint media. But first let's look at how paints are actually made. Currently this is. Oil paint dates back to ancient times, when artists mixed minerals and other elements with wax or oil. In the 1400s, they discovered that linseed oil was ideal as a pigment binder, because it allowed blending and glazing in layers. Centuries later, the colors in those paintings are still vibrant. Today, many oil paint pigments still come from natural sources, though most are synthetically made. Factories buy both types of pigments in powdered form to make their paints. Cuttlefish ink yields brown pigment. Lead produces a specific yellow. And mercury ore makes red. In the past, pigments have also come from stones, tree bark, plant gum, ground up glass, and even arsenic. This company's research laboratory spends about two years developing a color recipe. A chemist mixes specific amounts of linseed oil and pigment into a machine called an automatic Mueller. It rubs the ingredients together, dispersing the pigment particles throughout the oil. For each sample, the formulation is altered slightly in search of the perfect result. The research team compares the resulting colors and selects the best one. To produce a color on a large scale, workers start by pumping a specified amount of linseed oil into a mixer. Then they add the precise amount of pigment. Most colors are made with just one pigment. The precise mixing time and speed depends on the kind of pigment formulation being created. Next, the mixture is spooned into a mill. Three dispersion rollers rub the ingredients, separating pigment particles and coating them in oil. The recipe specifies how much pressure the rollers apply, how fast they turn, and how long they work the mixture. Milling can take hours or even days, depending on the texture of the pigment. The quality control lab takes samples from each batch coming off the mill and subjects them to a series of tests. Technicians scrutinize paint from both sides of the mill to ensure the mixture is being processed evenly. First, a spread test. A heavy brass weight goes onto a blob of paint for a prescribed period of time. Then, inspectors evaluate the volume of color and measure the distance it spread. If it doesn't spread far enough, it needs more milling. Next, a dispersion test. The markings on this gauge indicate the size of the paint's particles in microns, millionths of a meter. If the particles are too big, the paint hasn't been milled enough. Finally, inspectors time how long it takes the paint to dry to the touch. Each color has a specified drying time, ranging from two days to two weeks. 
The factory produces a chart that displays its 120 paint colors. Workers brush each color onto a primer-coated paper. When the paint dries, they cut each bar into rectangular swatches called chips. The chart is assembled using this mounting machine. The bottom has a section for chips of each color. And the top contains a cardboard chart coated in glue. As the machine closes, each chip aligns perfectly with its designated spot on the chart. Back in the production line, the factory packages one color at a time in toothpaste-style tubes that will be finished off with twist caps. Once the labels go on, the tubes make their way to the filling machine. There, the tubes have their tops screwed on. A nozzle squirts in the paint. Then clamps flatten the edges shut. A roller folds over the edge to strengthen the seal against squeeze pressure. Now, these oil paints are finally ready to meet the canvas. That's a quick overview of, of basically how oil paints are made now. And next time we'll get into talking about a number of, of different paints. But one of them, I mean, one of the, you know, obviously key colors was white. And it's one of the things I was sort of mentioning in the break as well, that there is a white, which is called lead white. And it's been used for many, many, many years. Um, unfortunately, mixing lead in the paint was toxic. So it would be fine actually in small amounts if used just for painting, but it became on vogue to use lead white in cosmetic products to use as skin lighteners. So, it, so in the ancient world, the lightened skin was a sign of the ability, you know, wealth, that you didn't have to be out in the sun toiling. Um, so everybody wanted whiter skin and they basically used this lead pigment to color their faces and color their, their bodies with the result that blemishes and scars developed often really, really badly in the 1600s. In one case, at least, the lady kept applying this pigment more and more and more to cover up all the blemishes and she eventually died of, of lead poisoning. So recently, um, there was a coalition to ban sort of lead, white lead paint use. And it's been adopted in several countries, but not all. So you can still buy lead white paint, but you can buy it only in a small size tube for safety reasons. Okay, so that was just trivia about lead white. But now let's, let's move on to a specific purple another kind of a rich purple that we're going to talk about. And this is the Han purple, or the Chinese purple that I alluded to earlier. You may be familiar, probably you are familiar with the terracotta warriors. This is what they look like up here. But what this complex is, where you see these sort of rows of giant 
terracotta soldiers. This is a tomb of the first emperor of China. It was built for him, it started to be built for him when he was 13 years old and continued to be built until the time of his death. Involved something like 700,000 workers. It is, it is truly, in the sense of the word, a necropolis, which means city of the dead. It is replete with, so the emperor's tomb is there somewhere. The emperor's tomb still has not been unearthed uh, or accessed. But we know that there is something there, and it will be very interesting to see, finally, what the tomb is like if we get to it. Uh, but beyond this tomb is this city where you have a terracotta army to fight with the emperor in the underworld, basically. Um, the army has soldiers, it has horses, uh, it has um, 130 chariots, 150 cavalry horses. It's just mind-boggling in terms of the scale. And one thing to note about it, too, though, is we talked about alchemy. And we talked about mercury and sulfur. And interestingly, sort of the Chinese at this time were, were really advanced in alchemical knowledge. And again, they wanted this universal sort of elixir, which would be combining equal amounts of a perfect balance of sulfur and mercury. And interestingly, where this tomb is built is extremely high mercury content in the ground. And some archaeologists and scholars think that the tomb, when they do find it, is going to be just sort of filled with, with, uh, with mercury content. We'll see. Um, getting back to the soldiers, though, the soldiers, the horses, the chariots, there's about 8,000 soldiers estimated to be there. And as you can see in this picture, they're very sort of worn out. They, you, you there's really no color. They're terracotta-like terracotta pottery, almost. Well, they're not actually, when they were actually built, they were colored vividly and colored extremely brightly. The problem is the degradation was so great that until recently, archaeologists couldn't find much of the original paint samples. But they did find them, analyzed them, and came up with a picture of what these soldiers would look like. And among some of the amazing colors were very vibrant reds, but also this really vibrant Chinese purple, which is unique in how it's manufactured. We're going to look at this uh, next video to talk to you about this incredible pigment. I can talk to you about it, but I can't show you all of the scenes and what they've done. So in discovering this pigment, not only have they made reproductions of what the colored soldiers would look like, but physicists analyzed the pigment they took it at the microscopic level, and they've basically subjected it to different forms of radiation. And they find that it actually has the property of generating waves that collapse three dimensions into two dimensions. And that's a, that's a little bit, again, beyond the scope of the course. But what's really interesting about that is if you have this wave in two dimension, think of it like ripples propagating out in a pond. This has a lot of implications for the physical science of semiconductors. If you can understand how to create these waves and the dynamics of these waves in two dimension, 
you can build better semiconductors, you can build better um, power, better ability to, um, for it to have technological capability. So it turns out that looking back to a really, really old um, technology, which was the production of this purple color back in about 236, um, yeah, 236 BC, uh, is giving us insights into modern material science which may help us advance technology. So here is the video. It's, again, it's about 14, 12, 14 minutes or so, but uh, I hope you will find it interesting. Breathing lacquer fumes during this interview. I've started it later on. Reaction two days later. The first emperor's workers were forced to expose themselves to poisonous lacquer on a daily basis. And 21st century researchers must now work with a toxic sap so they can save the colors on the terracotta warriors. The problem is that the lacquer layer um, was embedded in the wet soil for 2,200 years. As soon as excavation exposes the ancient lacquer to air, its moisture begins to evaporate. As the lacquer dries out, it begins to shrink until it curls up and separates from the clay, taking paint with it. Finally, the lacquer layers just flake off in tiny flakes, and then there's no chance to bring them back to the terracotta. The only solution is to keep the lacquer moist so that it will stay attached to the terracotta. Its water must be replaced by something that won't evaporate. One group of German scientists has tried coating warrior fragments with a plastic used to seal underground water pipes. Then bombarding the plastic with electron beams from a particle accelerator which evaporates the water and bonds the plastic to the lacquer. But that can't be done by archaeologists in the field, who may have only minutes to save a painted warrior. We hope that we will find a method that is um, simple and cheap, easy to apply during the excavation, and that helps to preserve the lacquer layers in the first moment. While saving the warrior's color seems difficult, reconstructing what they originally looked like may be an even greater challenge. The only clues are faded fragments of terracotta, bits of paint found in soil, and decades-old excavation reports. But now, visitors to a Munich museum can see what the terracotta warriors may have looked like. After years of painstaking research, Katerina Bleinsdorf and her colleagues have painted two warrior replicas as they believe they looked when they were finished more than 2,000 years ago. Many people were astonished or surprised because they didn't expect them to be so colorful. And some people were also really shocked 
um, because um, somehow they just like the terracotta version and they found it's kind of um, disturbing it or breaking it up. And they really asked me, they asked me, are you really sure that it has to be like this? It's based on our findings, so we are pretty sure that this is true. And they just have to get used to it. And we tell them that, of course, we are not going to repaint the originals. <laughs> but there are even more complex mysteries surrounding the warriors. When they analyzed surviving color fragments, conservation experts made an unexpected discovery. These purple. It has unique and surprising properties. Halfway around the world, researchers at Stanford University are using the world's most powerful X-ray machine to study those properties. A team of scientists has focused a light one billion times brighter than the sun on a few flakes of Chinese purple, trying to find out exactly what they're made of. Now actually we know we have the first uh, concrete material evidence. Zhe Liu, Aperva Mehta, and Nobumichi Tamura are all physicists. But they've set out to solve an archaeological mystery. We're looking at uh, one clamp of the Chinese purple uh, pigments, and uh, the size is around the 50 micro, so it's about to your, the cross-section of your, your hair. From a very tiny sample, you can tell a very big story. Chinese purple is one of only two entirely man-made colors produced anywhere in the world before the birth of Jesus. The other was Egyptian blue, created by chemists working for the pharaohs thousands of miles from China, and centuries before the Silk Road opened up trade between China and the West. People speculate there's a technology transfer from Egypt to China because of the similarity between those two materials, which is really significant in terms of uh, technology development and then the communication between two civilizations. Stanford's powerful X-ray machine confirmed that Chinese purple and Egyptian blue shared all the same ingredients, with two exceptions. Egyptian blue contains calcium, while Chinese purple has barium in it. And the Chinese also added something the Egyptians never used, lead oxide. It indicates that the uh Chinese really actually uh, invented the Chinese purple completely independently uh, from, the, from the Egyptian. There was no technology transfers at all here. And that told us that the technology they used for forming this material was uh, very unique. If it wasn't brought from Egypt, that means the Chinese created the pigment using their own methods. The team believes these methods were not developed for art or science, but for religion. This burial suit was made for a Chinese leader who went to his grave not long after the terracotta warriors went to theirs. A suit made of thousands of pieces of jade. 2,000 years ago, the Chinese elite believed jade would magically make them immortal. They paid alchemists to find a formula for making jade. The alchemists created a jade lookalike 
called Chinese glass, made with barium and lead, the two key ingredients of Chinese purple. As they search for the secrets of immortality, did they also create Chinese purple? Chinese glass and Chinese purple have nearly identical chemical compositions. Their apparent connection doesn't end there. Around 250 AD, some 500 years after the terracotta warriors were made, China's religious beliefs began to change. People no longer buried themselves in jade to make their bodies immortal. Chinese glass disappeared. And Chinese purple vanished at exactly the same time. It was never made again. It would seem Chinese purple has a sacred past, fitting for warriors meant to accompany the emperor into the afterlife. And across the United States, another powerful scientific tool has revealed that Chinese purple's potential might lead to fantastic technological breakthroughs. In Tallahassee, Florida, scientists have discovered that the terracotta warrior's purple paint is much more than just a beautiful color. They made their discovery here, the National High Magnetic Field Laboratory, home of the 45T hybrid, the world's most powerful magnet. It packs 45 Teslas of magnetic force. Facility director Eric Palm has a simple way of showing what 45 Teslas can do. If I take this steel washer closer to the magnet, you can see that it will be pulled and attracted to the magnet. I believe that the stored energy is about 20 sticks of dynamite. It's, it's dangerous enough that we don't typically allow people to be, that have not been trained to be around the magnet. We don't allow people to bring tours where they can see the magnet just in case something bad happens. Scientists from around the world, like Suchitra Sebastian of Cambridge University, use the magnet in their research. Load just about any material on Earth into this magnet's core, and then pump in liquid helium to cool it down to hundreds of degrees below zero. The 45T hybrid's power will force the material to reveal its hidden physical properties. In 2006, Suchitra Sebastian and Neil Harrison put a few flakes of Chinese purple into the magnet's core and saw something astonishing. Inside the magnet, the molecules of Chinese purple became a single magnetic wave, a unique state in the world of quantum physics. The team dropped the temperature even further, and the magnetic wave lost its third dimension separating into individual two-dimensional planes. Well, when I first saw this, I guess we were just in disbelief. It's a big surprise being uh, a totally new type of discovery. A discovery that might change the world. Because studying shifts from three dimensions down to two could help make better superconductors. And better superconductors could mean more efficient magnetic trains lower electricity bills, and faster computers. It's incredible to think that this material that's been around for um, you know, more than 2,000 years, that was initially discovered and in fact created 
by Chinese chemists um, and has been on this terracotta army for 2,000 years. It's incredible to think that we've revisited this material, something that's a fundamental advance in our understanding in our 21st century knowledge of physics, and that's just mind-blowing. And there may still be other mysteries concealed within this ancient army. More than 2,000 years ago, the terracotta warriors were an emperor's vision and a brilliant technological achievement. Today, scientists are revealing just how brilliant that achievement was and searching for other mysteries hidden within these ancient masterpieces. The full video is, is uh, 54 minutes long, uh, and you have the link. You can take a look if you're interested, but it's, it's, it's compelling. As compelling as the terracotta warriors were before, they're even more compelling now. You probably not look at them the same way again. And uh, that's about it for today. Have a good Valentine's Day. And these are some colored roses. They're real. They just put dyes in the water. And the rosa, uh, you can slice the stems and put different dyes and dip it in different dyes and you get the beautiful colored roses. So, happy Valentine's Day. Hi.